Novelist and playwright Norman Mailer once said, the natural role of the 20th century man is anxiety. Maybe we could change that and say the natural role of the 21st century man is fear and anxiety and worry. It's not a 20th century problem. It's a 21st century problem. As a matter of fact, it was a first century problem as well. You know, the other day I uh, woke up early. Uh, I, I, work, uh, I woke up early to miss my kids so I can actually get a quiet time in. Emphasis on the word quiet. Um, and I, I, I woke up, but I woke up way earlier and my brain turned on. And you, if you've ever had that, where you wake up and your brain just shifts on, you can't quite turn it off. No matter where you put the sheets, no matter how you lay, your brain just starts spinning and spinning. And that's where my brain was. I couldn't turn it off. I was thinking about things. I was thinking about things I was thinking about today. I was thinking about a few weeks from now. There's this day called Christmas coming up. Anybody thinking about that at all? I was thinking about gifts and presents. I was thinking about birthdays. I was thinking about the, the youth retreat that's coming. Will we have snow? Will we not have snow? We're going to the mountain, so we better have snow or it's kind of a waste of a trip. I was thinking about all these things, and the thing about all these things was I was worrying, and I was, I was going, is this gonna work? You know, we have plans for things in the coming weeks, and, and what if someone gets sick? What if we have to cancel? What if there's a new government rule? What if there's something else that happens? What if, what if, what if? And I thought, I don't usually worry. And then I remembered I'm preaching on worrying this week. <laughs> and I said, Lord, thank you for giving me a starter for this sermon. Whenever you're ready, I would love to have the how to spend a million dollars sermon. Because I am, I am absolutely ready for that. Unfortunately, I, don't, I didn't find a passage on that in the Bible. But we think about it, we've got all sorts of ways to try to push the worry away, to push the worry out so that someone else takes care of it for us. I heard a joke this week. The joke went like this. There was this man who was known for being a big-time worrier. And he told his friend, he goes, I figured out the problem to worry. I'm going to pay this guy over here $1,000, and every time I have a worry, I'm going to call him up and say, you worry about that, I'm not going to worry about it. And his friend says, that's a great idea. Where are you getting the $1,000? And he goes, hold on a second, I need to make a phone call. <laughs> He's going to call him to tell him, hey, worry about this for me. And see, that's what we do, right? If you've bought a cell phone, one of the things that they ask you, especially if you have an iPhone, is they say, would you like Apple Care with that? And when you ask, it's an insurance policy. You pay some money up front. It's not a ton of money but it opens up the floodgates for when you drop your phone and it breaks or something stops working. There's somebody to care for it for you. And me, I just go, oh, I can care for my phone just fine until I can't and I break it. But think about that. Think about how things have changed in the last few years, right? It used to be you bought concert tickets, you bought game tickets, you bought airline tickets, you bought all sorts of these things that were for the future and you bought them and you didn't think about them until the day of when you started going, okay, where are we going to park? Do we do dinner beforehand? What are we going to do? What is this? How do we get there? What time? Now you got to think, hold on a sec. What happens if that gets canceled? Or what happens if I get, come back with a positive test? Because now you got to have those to do those things. What happens? What about that? 
And so we like to be able to push those worries out there, but if we're honest with ourselves, even if we have Apple Care, even if we have some sort of insurance program, our brains still go to, well, what if, what if, well, what if I do, I don't have the money now, but if I, uh, uh, and we start worrying and getting our things up. See, it's one thing to plan, but this worrying thing, it's a whole different object. And Christ is going to speak to that today. In the first century Israel, Palestine, people worried, and they worried just like us. Jesus' disciples worried. And so Jesus has a word for us today. So here's our big idea. And I'll warn you right now, you can go ahead and put it up there, Kyle, that there's going to be a lot of points on this. If you don't get them all, that's fine. I can email you the notes. It's, you can get them. Uh, but really, there, this is just telling you what's already in front of you in the passage. So even if you don't have my words, my words are not magic in any way, shape, or form. It's God's word that I'm just trying to clarify for you. So here's the big idea. Kingdom citizens understand that the demands of this world will produce deep anxiety, deep worry in a person unless that person learns to trust God. So there's this, this deep anxiety that is right there at the gate, ready to take over, to ready to pounce on us unless we learn how to trust God. What's interesting about this, this sermon that we've been going through, this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus doesn't start with worry. He doesn't start off and go, okay, guys, hey, I'm Jesus. I know you all have a worrying problem. Let me explain to you how to fix that. That's not where Jesus starts because he realizes that's not going to make any sense. The solution will make no sense if you first don't get what reality is. And the reality is, is that the kingdom of heaven is here. And the kingdom of heaven led by Jesus Christ is here. And once you get that, then this worrying thing now becomes something that's curable. It becomes something that's conquerable. And so Jesus doesn't start with how to not worry. He starts with who is in charge. So we see there's really two big parts to this sermon. The first part is don't be anxious because the king of God, king, God is the king of all, of everything. All life is his. The second part is don't worry because you're God's child. You are God's child. Nothing can change that. So where are we going to go with this? Well, you'll see in this passage today, we're going to do 20, verses 25 through 34, that there are seven reasons why Jesus says not to worry. Multiple commentators have said a version of these. We're just going to use these words to kind of understand what Jesus is saying. But he says, there are lots of reasons to not worry. Here are the seven that you as followers of Christ need to know. So where have we been? Well, the very first line of this passage is the word, therefore. Let's go ahead and read it right now, and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll do that here. This is what it says. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither soar, sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value, value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? 
Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. That's the word of the Lord. What we see here is we see this word, therefore. This is a code word. This is a word that Jesus is saying, listen, I've said all this other stuff. Now, here is the logical conclusion. This is a, this is a logical word. This is a word to say, heads up, I'm summarizing where we've been and where you should be. This is like when you take two and two, and you have two plus two, and you have the equal sign, and then the four. The equal sign is the therefore. It's saying, because of these other things, look at where we are now. And in this passage, we see therefore several times. Jesus is saying, get this, get this, get this. It's very important that you get this. See, where we were last week, he, he, he left them saying, do you trust God more than you trust money? And their answer, hopefully, would have yes. So now this, therefore, is playing another role. It's the role of the test. He's saying, if that's true, here's a way for you to test yourself. So last week, we talked about how we're not to treasure money, not to treasure possessions, not to treasure stuff. Now he's saying, let's test ourselves. Let's see where we're at. Are we putting our trust into money, possessions, stuff? Because worry or anxiety is a sign that you're not trusting God. The test is to see whether we get this or not. So what do these words mean? What do, what do anxiety and worry mean? Planning for tomorrow is time well spent. That's not worry. Thinking about what will happen in the future is not worry. But devoting time to fretting and trying to deal with things that may or may not happen is worry. Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference, isn't it, between planning and worrying. Planning involves steps and goals and schedules and ultimately relies on trusting in God. When well done, planning alleviates worry. Worriers, by contrast, are, are consumed with fear and are consumed with what ifs, what's going to happen. Here's how it's going to go. Here are the things that are going to happen. One, one author wrote, every tomorrow has two handles. We can take hold of the handle by the handle of anxiety, or we can take hold of the handle of faith. Which one is it going to be? Jesus is teaching us that anxiety and worry is a choice. As a matter of fact, even more so, it's the emotional byproducts of the wrong choice. We're choosing to say, I don't trust that God's going to take care of tomorrow, so I am going to worry about it today. If we choose those worldly possessions, it's really normal to worry and be anxious. Because what did Jesus say last week? He said, they're going to rust, moths are going to eat them, or people are going to steal them. They're not here. They're transitory. No matter how much money you have, there's somebody that will try to take it. There is some way that it will be eaten and destroyed. Or worse, you're going to die and it doesn't go with you. So he says, don't worry about those things. Don't make those things your God. So anxiety is a symptom of a deep spiritual sickness. Worrying like this is a sin. Now, some of you may be saying, oh, hold on a second. So I was already worrying, and now, great, I'm worrying about my worrying because you're saying it's a sin. But see, here's the thing. This is actually good news. If worrying and anxiety 
is just a character trait, like talking fast or talking with your hands, right? If that's all it is, there's no promise in the Bible that God says, hey, you know what? These character traits that I put into you, they're just, you're stuck with them. Instead, he says, this is a sin, and this sin is one that my son died and defanged and destroyed. All you got to do is rise up underneath it. Because that ultimately is our hope. And that's good news. Because anything that's a sin in your life, Christ has beaten it. Christ has destroyed it through his death on the cross. And all we need to do is get in line with his spirit and let the spirit work on us so that we can be freed from that sin as well. So this is good news. All right, so here we go. First part. Do not be anxious because God is the king of all of life. This is going to cover verses 25 through 30. So this is the first point that Jesus is making, the first kind of overarching. Underneath this, he's going to have a bunch of reasons. So verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body and what you will put on. So Jesus starts off and he says, hey, don't worry. Stop worrying. Stop. That's it. He leaves it there. Imagine that you went in to talk to a doctor, and the doctor says, hey, here's the diagnosis, it's terrible, but don't worry. You're going to go, what? No, 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 I'm going to worry until you tell me this thing is curable. See, and that's what Jesus does. Jesus starts off and he says, don't worry, and I'm going to tell you why you shouldn't worry. As a matter of fact, he's going to say, sit down, think through this with me. Think through this. Let your brain walk through the logic here the spiritual logic of how God takes care of other things, so therefore he's going to take care of you. This thinking through starts with what Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Jesus is saying we must allow our minds to be instructed here. So how do we get this? Well, we get this through the study of Scripture. We get this when the Spirit brings clarity to what we read in Scripture, and then He brings it up in us and wells it up to new life. That's what we need. This is the change we need. This is what Jesus has been describing throughout the Sermon on the Mount. See, if we're in Christ, we are adopted into the King's family. And just like all adoptive children, they look and act nothing like their new adopted father. And yes, they may eventually act more like their father, but they're never going to look like him. However, because of Christ's death on the cross, the Spirit's remodeling of our hearts and lives, we not only sound and act like the king, we begin looking like the king. The Bible calls that sanctification. That's the picture of us being made more and more like him. And so that's the first thing Jesus says. He says, don't worry. And the reason you're not going to worry is because you are trusting in the Father, the Father who adopted you before you existed. And you are here now because of that. So our first reason, life is too important. First reason, Matthew 6.25, life is too important. Look at verse 25 again. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body or what you will put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? See, Jesus is asking that because the answer, based on where we've been already, is yeah, it actually is. Life is more than just the clothes 
and the food and the drink. This word anxious simply means worry. It's used six times in this passage. So Jesus is clearly saying, this is a big problem. This is a huge problem. So make sure you understand there is a solution. There is a cure. So is worrying a sin? Yes, it is. Have you noticed that most of the battles that Jesus has been talking about here throughout the Sermon on the Mount happen between our ears? It's, it's how we think. It's incorrect thinking in response to the truth of the kingdom that is broken in through Christ. The sin of worry is the same because the root cause of sin, of this sin, according to this passage, is unbelief. It's saying, no, God, I don't think I can trust you with tomorrow. As a matter of fact, today is iffy. It's unbelief, and it is sin. But praise be to God, Jesus says there's a cure. And so he uses this argument, argumentation that has a really cool Latin name. It's called argumentum a miori ad minimus, which simply means arguing from the greater to the lesser. What Jesus is saying here, this is a rabbinic style of argument. What he says is, God made you, which was the big thing. He made all of us. And he said, if God can do this big thing, then he can do the little thing of providing you with some food, something to drink, and some clothes. See, that the argument from the greater to the lesser is a very powerful argument. And Jesus knows that they're going to get this. He says, life is too, too important. Your life is too important. God has made you. He breathed life into you. It's too important for you to go on worrying about it because God has got this. If he made you and the entire universe, he can provide for you. So that's our first reason. Second reason we see in verse uh, 26 is that you are too important. You are too important. Verse 26 says this, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Now this is another Latin term, argumentum amiori ad meus, which means arguing from the lesser to the greater. Jesus flips it on its head, and he says, look at this, these birds, these animals, that God takes care of them. And yeah, they're cool, and there's entire television stations all dedicated to documentaries on these amazing things. But God goes, you're way more important. You are the only creatures on earth that are made in my image. You are reflecting me. And if I take care of these animals, which, yeah, they reflect the fact that I'm creative. I mean, who doesn't think that God's creative? Just look at the duckbill platypus. God's creative. And God says, these are amazing, and I take care of them. None of them die without me knowing it and making that the case. None of them live without me providing. So if that's the case with these animals, oh, yeah, you better believe it's true with us, those who are made in his image. Jesus reverses the logic to make a bigger point. And see, what's amazing about this is that, that birds work tirelessly, tire, tirelessly. They're working constantly. They're constantly out there gathering up food and making nests and doing all their thing. And Jesus is saying, don't give up working. That's not what I'm saying. Don't sit around and wait for Jesus to drop food into your mouth. Instead, Jesus is saying, even with how hard these birds work, sun up to sundown, no breaks, no Sabbaths, they're still 100% dependent on nature. And nature is controlled by God. The provision that they're going to get is solely based on God's providing. And so 
with us. We are even, are able to do even more than the birds, but yet we're still fully dependent on God's provision. Just as a good father cares for his children, if God cares for the birds he made, he will care for his kids even more. See, when we let anxiety take over, it restricts and we get this, this tunnel vision and we can't see reality. And Jesus says, no, no, look around. So the next time you're out and you hear the birds singing away, recognize they work harder than you, but they're making time to worship God nonstop through their song. Why? Because they get that God's providing and that God will provide and he will provide continuously until their life ends and the birds worship. So why can't we? What happens if we started looking at life like the birds and we started worshiping in song? I'm not saying you're gonna go around and whistle everywhere you go, but maybe start, yeah, you don't mind. Start doing, I mean, start seeing it the way birds do. When we hear the birds worshiping, recognize it's them saying, God, thank you for providing. Third reason why we should not worry. Worry doesn't do any good, Matthew 6 27. Worry doesn't do any good. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Worrying is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but you don't go anywhere. <laughs> Worry has never solved a single problem. It's never saw, dried a single tear. It's never lifted a burden. It's never removed an obstacle. Never made a bad thing good or good things better. No one after winning the Super Bowl will say, well, we put in a lot of time in the offseason. We did all this work. We made all these moves. A bunch of things broke our way. But really, the most important thing is, I just worried about all the bad plays I was going to make. I just worried about all the potential injuries I could have had. Nobody gets done with a tough situation, a tough period of life, and goes, gee, you know, I wish we'd have worried more. Now, this is not to discount worry. I poke fun at it because it's, it's fun. Worry is debilitating, isn't it? Sometimes it's carved into our bodies by sores called ulcers. Sometimes it's etched into our face by lines that we call wrinkles. It may be pictured on our lips by the frown we wear continuously. It can be heard in the footsteps pacing back and forth late into the night, fretting about what's going to happen. It can also be heard in the silence of a person laying in bed, staring at the ceiling, going, what if? What's going to happen? See, a person's survival depends on God and his sovereignty, not on our anxiety and worry. See, God has it all mapped out. There's no accidents in this world. If you doubt that, I encourage you to look at verses like Deuteronomy 32, 39, or Job 14, 5, or Psalm, all of Psalm 139, which says, God has foreordained our birth and our death and everything in between, and it's all a part of his plan. Worry adds nothing to God's plan. It does not help. It is useless. God's plan is sure, and it is going to happen. You will have all you need to do all that he has called you to do. That is assured. So why do we worry? Is it because we think he doesn't have the power? Could be. Is it because we're not sure what he's like? Could be. Is it because we want to have control of some sort? Could be. Could be any of those. But see, when anxiety grips us with its painful talons, when we take our lives out of the Father's hands and we try to hold them ourselves, one author writes that this is the problem. 
The secret of freedom from anxiety is freedom from ourselves and abandoning our own control of the plans. God is in control. Not just any old God. Our God, the Father, is in control. He has it all under control. Charles Spurgeon, of course, nails it. He says this about worriers. He said, they stab themselves with imaginary daggers. They starve themselves in imaginary famines. And they even bury themselves in imaginary graves. Such strange creatures are we that we probably smart more under the blows which never fall than under those that actually come. Isn't that the truth? He says, the rod of God does not smite us as sharply as the rod of our own imagination. Our groundless fears are our chief tormentor. And if that's not a picture of where we are at as a church, as a nation, and as a world right now, where we are worrying about things that may never come, and we are trying to deal with them today, and God has said, I haven't given you the strength to deal with tomorrow. You have the strength for today. Worry does incredible damage and not a single good thing. Reason four, this is verses 28 through 30. God cares about you. I mean, right there, that, that's, I could have just said that 150 times and we could have been done. That's the best news in the world, is that God the Father cares about you. Verses 28 through 30. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? So why does God make lilies? Well, it's because he likes beautiful things. Why does God make grass? Because he likes useful things. Think about all the things we use grass for. And yet these two things, if you cut a lily, no matter how hard you try, that, that plant's gonna die. It's one of the most depressing things as a father. When I find a flower, when I'm out running and I bring it to my daughter and two days later, it's gone. It's deteriorated. It's depressing. Our lawns are depressing. The grass dies. It doesn't grow where we want it to, or it grows where we don't want it to. And don't get me started on weeds. <laughs> and yet they spring up and they die. And yet God says, if I control them, if I care for them, how much more am I going to care for you? This phrase, little faith, is used four times in the book of Matthew. This is the first one. Later on in chapter 8, he uses it when the storm comes along and they goes, little faith. You guys have little faith. I can control this. When Peter's walking on water, trying to walk on water, he goes, you have little faith. And then later when Jesus does the miracle of feeding the 5,000, he says, little faith. You didn't think I could do this. So here, this little faith is, is doubt which leads to the anxiety. We begin doubting that God will take care of us tomorrow, and so we stop believing that he will. And this disbelief absolutely paralyzes. As a matter of fact, this, this dis disbelief leads us to believe wrong things about God. We become practical atheists. We say, God's not really there, so I need to worry. Or we say, God's too busy. We're, we're practical deists. And we say, God's too busy, he's off doing something else, so I need to worry. Or worse, we, be, we believe God's not powerful enough. When we say he's a finite God, he doesn't have the power, so I need to worry. 
All four of these are not true. And we know it in our heart of hearts, but when it comes to worry, for some reason, we just say, well, I need to worry. I need to have that control. God is there. He cares. His power is not limited. So little faith. This is an interesting phrase. If you think about it, whatever's big in your life runs your life. If your faith is little, it's not running your life. Something else is. Maybe worry. Big worry, little faith. Maybe it's big pride, little faith. Whatever it is that is big in your life is what runs your life. Big me, little faith. If your faith is small, your response to situations will not be in line with faith. So now someone might say, this is not good news. In fact, I'm incredibly discouraged. I have a bigger problem. Not only do I worry, but my faith is tiny. And I would say, yeah, you have a problem, but it's not as big a problem as you think. I'm going to summarize what one author said. He said, imagine that you have a pain in your stomach. You've been struggling with medicines and diets of all sorts of kinds. So finally you go to the doctor and after a routine visit, he says, you have a serious disease in your small intestine. Would that be good news? You'd say, no, it's not good news. But let me put it a different way. Are you glad that the doctor found it? Because guess what? It's treatable. And guess what? The treatment usually works. So now what was bad news has now become good news. Yeah, there's still the bad of, yeah, I have a disease, but that disease is going to get beaten. And this is exactly where we are with this. The bad news is we have little faith. The good news is the great physician is ready to work. Scalpel in hand, he's ready to go. All we have to do is ask. All we have to do is be willing. So when we learn the real problem behind anxiety is little faith, we know God's future grace is ready to be poured out on us. He's able to work wonderfully. All we must do is, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Help my little faith. And the best part is, we know because he's our heavenly father and we're a part of his family, he hears us and he acts. So now we move into the second part of this passage. And the overarching theme here is do not be worried because you are the king's children. Do not be worried, you are the king's children. You're only the king's children if you are found in Christ. If you are here and you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are the king's child. And he treats you better than the best father on the planet. See, worry does not fit with who you are. If you are in Christ, you're God's children, and he is in complete control. So the fifth reason why we are to not worry is because pagans worry. Because pagans worry. Verses 31 through 32. Therefore do not be anxious. What shall we eat and what shall we drink and what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Now when he says Gentile here, he's not talking about ethnic because I think pretty much everybody in this room would be a Gentile. He's talking about pagan. He's talking about their religion. He's saying the Gentile religion is going to go after all these things, whereas believers and members of the kingdom go after something different. Gentiles run after these things. We are meant to run after the Lord. Like Psalm 42, 1, as the deer pants for flowing stream, so my soul pants after you. Verse 32, 
This lack of uncompromising trust in God is not only a front to him, but it's essentially pagan. Because first we see that our worry is focused on the same thing as theirs is. They're worried about the stuff and how, to, how they're going to deal with tomorrow. And we line right up with them. And we go, yeah, I, that's exactly what I'm worried about. Not only that, but we, we as citizens of the kingdom, we say, I believe in God. And our actions, when we worry, we're advertising the exact opposite. We're saying, I don't believe in God. As a matter of fact, I'm worried. I'm worried about tomorrow. I'm worried about today. I'm worried about five years from now. We are advertising that we don't believe in the kingdom of God when we worry. So now, verse 32 ends with, Father knows that you need them all. Verse 33 ends with, all these things will be added to you. These are two phrases that I I think we need to kind of push in on a little bit here because there's some misunderstandings here. Aren't there Christians out there that will starve to death this year? The answer is yes. What about Christians who are driven from their homes and have to go somewhere else? Is that going to happen in our world? Yeah. Are Christians going to be martyred for their faith? Absolutely. Are there Christians that will die in car crashes, that will die from diseases, and many other things? Doesn't God promise to take care of them? Isn't that what these verses are saying? He says, your father knows you need them all, so he knows that we need them. And then he says, all these things will be added to you. It sure sounds like if we're Christians, then none of these bad things are gonna happen. No starving, no death, no lack of clothing. But what we see in the world is the exact opposite of that. Here's the thing. Jesus never promises us, if we're members of his kingdom, that we will not suffer that there will not be pain, and that we will not die. This verse is promising that God knows exactly what you need to keep on living so long as he wants you to live. All the clothes, water, everything we need, he will provide for us until it's time for us to die. Kevin DeYoung puts it this way. This is based on a profound theological truth. God is not stupid. God sees us. He knows we are here He hasn't gone out to lunch. He hasn't taken a nap. He's not a parent who loses his child in some part of the grocery store. He is for you, not against you. See, Jesus does not promise us that we'll choose him and all of our wildest dreams will come true. But he does promise us he will give us every single thing that we need until our final breath, which he has written from before all time in his books. It's there. It's not changing. See, what Jesus is saying is there's more to life than living because we're all going to die, every single one of us. If we make our goal to stay alive, then we will fail, and we will fail miserably. There's more to life than avoiding death. The pagans are doing everything they can to try to avoid death. We are to recognize God is in control, and when it's my time, it's my time. Think about it. If you eat all the right stuff, if you take all the precautions, if you do all the safety things, you know, one seatbelt's not enough, I'm doing two. I'm doing four masks. You know what? I'm only eating vegan or or, organic made in my own yard. Is that going to let you live one second longer than what God has planned? No. Not a second. See, God will give us all the food and clothes we need to live. 
And when God says, when I want you to stop living, you will stop living and you will come home to be with me. I am in control. You were put here for a reason bigger than simply living. We are on this earth to glorify God in our lives and in our deaths and then for eternity. See, what Jesus wants here is he wants us to be consumed with one single thing. And he says it in verse 31. Sorry, he says it in verse 33. To be consumed with the kingdom. To be consumed with God's reign and rule. Not just in my heart, but in my family, in my neighborhood, in the lives of the non-believers that I know. After all, you're not a pagan. So stop living like it. Stop holding on to this life like it and be looking to the life that's coming. Reason six, the kingdom matters more. Matthew, Matthew 6, 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. This word seek is what's called a present imperative, which means that it's a continuous action. It's not a, oh, I sought Jesus and I'm done. It's a continuous, I'm going to do it forever. And the word first can be used in a chronological, like do this first and then move on to other things, but that's not what this word means. Instead, this means this is your singular aim. Like when we talk about someone who's the top, the best, the most important, we say first among equals, right? This idea of being the main thing, the only thing, that's what this is supposed to be. Not seek first this, and then secondly this, and then thirdly this. It's seek first. This is what we are to be known for. This is actually a, just synonymous with what we saw back in chapter 5, when it's, we're to be known for hungering and thirsting after righteousness. You know, I think about this with me. Having been a teacher and a coach for 16 years, actually coached for longer than that, I didn't want to be known as a coach who taught I wanted to be a teacher who coached. And so I really bristled at any time people would call me coach when I was their teacher. Because that's not what I wanted to be known for. I didn't want to be known for somebody who loves a sport that many times, <laughs> many times I lost. You know, because there's, you know, 32 teams in the league and only one wins the title and it was never me. And so I didn't want to be known for something so superficial. I wanted to be known for something greater because I wanted my life to matter. And honestly, I had to look at it and go, what does my life say? Is my life geared around football so much that that's what people are going to think? Or is my life geared around even being a teacher so much that that's what they're going to think is most important? Or are they going to say Christ is most important, the kingdom is most important? Because we as followers, we as members of the kingdom, as citizens, the kingdom should be what we seek first, second, last, all the way through. You know, Hebrews eleven six talks about this and uses the same word seek, and this is what it says. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And I like the ESV, but the ESV gets this wrong. The NIV and the New King James get this right. This word at the end where it says, those who seek him, one of them says, diligently seek him. Another one says, earnestly seek him. This is the picture. We are to continually seek him so much that people will go, wow, you don't have any hobbies because all you're doing is seeking after Jesus. 
All you're doing is, all you want to talk about is Jesus. Why? Because it's my first and only thing. It's the thing that matters to me the most. I'm going to paraphrase Martin Lloyd-Jones because he's really long-winded, but this is what he says. If you want to seek anything, if you want to be anxious about anything, be anxious about your spiritual condition, your nearness to God, and your relationship to him. If you put that first, worry will go away, and that is the result. The great concern about your relationship with God will drive out all lesser worries, all lesser concerns, all lesser anxiety, because you are trusting in the one who is immovable. Spurgeon, again, nails it. He says, it does not matter how heavy your troubles are if you cast them on the Lord. The heavier they are, so much the better, because you've gotten rid of them, and you've laid them on the immovable rock. See, that's the picture that we are to look at. We are to see that the kingdom matters more. When we're anxious, we're distrusting in God. The God who promises graciously to give us all things. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Again, he did this big thing, he saved us, he sent his son. And if he can do that, he can do the small, all things that we need. See, it's not enough just to go, I'm not going to worry anymore. But it's, we must replace it with a kingdom desire, a desire to see the kingdom brought into this world, more so in my life than anything else. And lastly, the seventh reason to not worry is that tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Tomorrow will, tomorrow will worry for itself. Verse 34, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Today is the tomorrow we worried about yesterday. Anxiety doesn't empty us uh, tomorrow of sorrows, it actually empties today of strength. So what we, re we understand is that, that Jesus is saying, there's going to be worries that will come tomorrow. There's going to be things that you're going to be concerned about tomorrow. But he says, you must limit yourself to the concerns of today. Just like the manna we talked about last week. When the Israelites tried to hoard it up, it got rancid and worm infested. Same thing goes for us. When we try to ga gather enough strength to deal with tomorrow's problems, when we try to gather enough grace to deal with tomorrow's problems, it is not sufficient. He gives us the grace that we need today for today. And tomorrow, praise be to God, his mercies are new and we get new grace then. See, the next day, tomorrow is as far away from our grasp right now as a thousand years from now. Imagine if we were to start doing that and start worrying about where we will be a thousand years from now. We would say, that's ridiculous. You have no way of controlling a thousand years. Tomorrow is just as far away. And God is just as in control tomorrow as he is a thousand years from now. See, anxiety and worry are a heavy burden. And it's one that Jesus says, you're not qualified to carry it. It's not your burden to bear. It's mine. It's God's burden to bear. And for him, the burden is very light. So for us, God extends his grace. And it's sufficient for today. Today's grace is sufficient. It will not solve tomorrow's problems. That's what tomorrow's grace is for. 
The only way today's grace addresses tomorrow is by helping us cast all of our worry onto God and say, God, you got this. Tomorrow his grace is new and we will experience it again, Lord willing. So I want to finish you with a, a little story. This is a story of a foster kid. Grew up in a home. His parents didn't abuse him directly, but definitely neglected him. And in this home, he didn't have much food. He didn't have much clothes. He didn't really have anything until he got into a brand new foster home. Both of the parents loved him. They were moving towards adopting him. But they noticed something about this young boy. He always wanted to know what was, to, what was for lunch tomorrow. What, what are we going to eat tomorrow for lunch? And the mom would say, okay, well, I have a plan, and it's on the board, and you can see it. Okay, okay, okay. Mom, what are we eating tomorrow? Well, I told you, we've got this for the next day. Well, what about the next day? And she found that he would take potatoes, and he would hide them in his room so that he had something to eat if he needed it. And over time, this same, over and over again, she would say, I got a plan, don't worry. And he would say, no, no, I just, I just need to know, what's tomorrow? What's tomorrow going to be? And so finally, the mother and father realized that this idea of there being enough food for him was so foreign to him that they needed to do something drastic. So this is what they did. They grabbed him and they said, come here, I want to show you something. And they took him over to the pantry and they opened up the pantry and his eyes lit up and they said, see all of this? This is for you. And when this runs out, we'll go to the store and we'll fill it up again. And any time you want to eat from this pantry, all you got to do is come find me or your mom or your older brother and we'll come get you food anytime you want. There's no reason to hoard food in your room. There's no reason to worry about whether there will be a meal tomorrow. Look at this. And that's the picture for us of our God. Our God says, Listen, I'm going to give you enough to last your entire life until the moment I call you home, whether it's today or 20 or 30 years from now. When I call you home, you will have had everything you need to that point because my pantry is overflowing. So don't worry about tomorrow. I will give you enough for tomorrow. Don't worry about Tuesday. Don't worry about Christmas. Don't worry about the youth retreat in three weeks. Focus on the right now and the God that gives you the grace right now. See, if you're here today and you're not a part of this family or if this is foreign to you, you can join this family. It's not a members-only crew that you gotta know a secret handshake. It is simply being adopted into the family of God. And if you're here and you're a part of the family of God and you're going, this is so foreign to me, Pastor John's up there speaking a totally different language. If that's the case, it's because your faith is little. And that same heavenly father with that pantry wants to give you big faith. He wants to grow that in you. And he'll start it today if you'll only let him. He gives us the grace for today. He will give us the grace for tomorrow. He gives us big faith if we will let him. Because he is a God who is loving. He is a God who is a good Father. Rest in the truth that no matter what you imagine tomorrow holds, we do know who holds tomorrow.